0: Hello colleagues, welcome back to Evidence and Argument, a podcast for speech-language pathologists, audiologists, and the scientists who support them a podcast where you'll come with questions and leave with more of them. A podcast by two people who love thinking and lively debate, but hate beating around the bush and baseless claims.
1: Hey, Meredith. Hey, good to chat with you again. You too. Um, Do you realize that we have been chatting officially for about a year now because uh, our very first episode of Evidence and Argument was about a year ago mid pandemic. That's wild. (laughs) Yeah.
0: And in hindsight, I don't even actually remember what caused us to want to start doing it. It was sort of a, I think it was, I think it was maybe your idea. We started talking about podcasting and then suddenly we're just like, let's do this together. Yeah, You had
1: a really good question on in one of the Facebook groups. And one of my responses got some interest. And I said, Hey, you should come on my down the hatch podcast and talk about it. And then we realized this has nothing to do with swallowing it has everything to do with our whole field. Right. And then we were like, let's just make our own podcast and the go getters that we are, we did. But here's what really resonates with me. It's that You and I have undeniable passion for our field, whether we like it or not, because we are even entertaining all of the work that goes into putting a podcast together, talking about it, exposing ourselves, having people get mad at us or predict things about us or be happy and get frustrated and say, you would just want the field to be better. And uh, so when you and I decided that we're going to have a uh, do not necessarily a year in review, but just really talk about things, we thought, well, maybe they don't really know us well, and they don't know our story. And uh, so we decided that for this little series, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the joy, the drama, and the fears associated with being members of speech pathology and or communication sciences and disorders, however you refer to our discipline. And so Meredith is going to start out by talking about the joy, which is how has our profession allowed us to gain skills, build programs, be fulfilled, etc. Um, and we're going to start with that. Meredith is going to start, and then I'm going to ask some questions. I don't know what she's going to say. None of this is scripted. Uh, this is purely spontaneous. Um, and then I will answer the question, and she will ask me some questions about it. Yeah,
0: sounds like a good plan. This will be fun. Yeah, I um, I wrote down our three questions the other day. Um, as I was driving to Topeka, so that's where my family's from, Topeka, Kansas, um, to go pick up my kids because my parents had them for the weekend. And I'm just, just sitting there kind of like reflecting back on my career and the time I've spent in various places. So I've said this before on the podcast, but I'll say it again because it's relevant to understanding anything I'm talking about, is I've moved around a lot within our field. Like I've never had a career outside of our field other than, you know, high school waiting tables jobs and stuff like that. But um, I started out in academia, got my PhD, was a full time clinician for five or six years, was a full time faculty member for four years, I believe. And then I've been a full time business owner for a while now, too. Um, So I've sort of seen our field from various angles. And it's hard to know what I would be like as a professional person outside of our field because I can't, I don't even know what it feels like. You know, (laughs) I don't know what it feels like to, you know, what, or what it would feel like to like get an MBA and like work in an office building or something like that. But, um, I can kind of comment on what the various phases have provided me. Um, and the thing that really stands out to me about the time that I spent both as a doc student and as a faculty member is, um, the concept of just being forced to do something, even if it's scary and sort of what that feels like, because, when you're on the tenure track when you're a doc student and then you know you've got your first faculty job and everything academia is a very like upper out sort of system and you've got a timeline on that so you've got a lot of things that you need to do and a lot of um you know hurdles to jump over in a short period of time so like there's things like public speaking that terrified me when i was you know an undergrad and master's student but by the time i started lecturing at conferences more teaching more Um, just the act of doing it made it so that I became increasingly comfortable with it. Um, same thing with like publishing. Like, I feel like it would be really easy to get frozen, um, and think, you know, I can't write a book or I can't write a paper or I can't write an article for this newspaper. Like who am I to do something like that? But as a PhD, you don't get to, you don't get to stop and think, can I really write can I really do public speaking? Can I really teach? Can I really figure out how to run statistics for this you know, project I'm working on? You don't get to say, can I? You just have to do it, <laughs> right? And so um, that's the one thing that I feel like I'm really grateful for for um, the PhD years is that, you know? Um, in, the, I'll, in the SLP years, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting and it sort of hit me in a weird way When I started thinking about what it, what the differences were between the years that I spent as an SLP versus the years that I spent as a faculty member or more recently as a business owner. Um, And when I kind of like, you know, time machined myself backwards and I was like, what was I, what was I like in that time and what was I getting out of that experience being an SLP felt distinctly different than either being a faculty member or being a business owner. And that in that the focus wasn't on me. I remember my brain just being so much more on the clients and less on me. Whereas as a, whereas as a business owner, it's all about the project, right? It's all about you know your goals for the project and constantly thinking about the project, whatever it may be. Same thing with being a scientist, your brain is constantly on the project, how you're going to push it forward and the labor you're going to put toward that. And there's something about those things that feel a little bit more selfish and being an SLP feels a little bit more selfless, but interestingly, both in good and bad ways. Like when I was an SLP, um, I had a lot more time to develop close connections with people than I do, or I don't know. I don't know the time's the right word the job that I had made it so that I developed more close connections with people. And I really enjoyed that. Like, I remember the relationship building part of being an SLP, um, both with clients and with, you know, like SLP colleagues that were in the same office room as me. Um, And so I, I'm glad that I got to spend those years as an SLP sort of in a role that felt very serving. Like it felt very like my job is to do whatever I need to do in order to make this person who's sitting in front of me make their you know life better somehow. Um, so I liked that feeling. Um, the The interesting kind of downside of thinking about it like that, though, reeling, realizing how I was in a much more like selfless mindset when I was an SLP, is to a certain extent, I think that if SLPs thought about d- their career in the um, perspective of developing themselves more often it actually could be a good thing as well like if you're thinking selfishly and thinking what do I need to do to make my skill set better what do I need to do to make my career you know trajectory better in some ways that could be kind of a good thing so that was sort of strange realizing um like taking the time to actually reflect on how I was thinking about my daily life and how, it felt and how different it really did feel to be an SLP compared to being a faculty member or business owner. Um, and then the thing that I've been most grateful for about the time being within the time of being a business owner is I feel like it's helped me understand the world a whole lot better. (laughs) I, um, because Businesses are what drive absolutely everything. So every single one of us, the vast majority of our waking hours, are either us trying to make money for ourselves and/or us making money for somebody else, either willfully or not. You know what I mean? Like even when you're sitting and watching Netflix, you are making money for somebody else by that action, you know? And so that's the thing that's been most interesting to me as a business owner. Is feeling like some layers of like the onion of the world are much more peeled back for me now because I'm so much closer to seeing, recognizing, and understanding the way our entire world is all about revenue generation. (laughs) Um, And sometimes that's disturbing for me. That's actually the thing that I find hardest as a business owner. Um, But I also like it because I'm a curious person and I like learning about the world around me. And so even if sometimes the things that I see, I'm like, that's kind (laughs) of gross. I'm glad that I'm getting to see it. I'm glad that I'm getting to see it and getting to process it and stuff like that. So those would be the things that um, I would say I'm most grateful for across the various, um, you know, parts of my career. And um, ultimately, I don't think, I'll ever, I don't think I'll ever leave this field because there's so many opportunities to have different roles within our field. You know, it's not easy to necessarily to find an ideal fit and an ideal job, but you know, the work we do in our field isn't pointless. And the thing that I like about it most is the fact that knowing that what we do isn't pointless is what will keep me around forever. I mean, you know, nothing's ever guaranteed, but (laughs) you know, and that's, that's different. Like knowing that we're helping people with communication and eating basically, and that that will never not matter, no matter what, that's a really different feeling than like, if I, I don't know, like worked in a scrunchie factory or something, (laughs) you know, even if I loved my job and made really good money making those scrunchies, because everybody wanted my scrunchies, there would be a certain amount of it that would be like, I could not do this and it wouldn't matter. Like the work I'm doing doesn't, you know, matter all that much. But there's something about being in our field that it's really nice to know that what we do isn't
1: pointless. Yeah. So. Well, um what's really interesting about all the things you said is that I while I did know a lot of the, a lot of that about you, I never quite heard it from a perspective like that, right? And I find I, you made me wonder about whether the, re, the reason you've had three parallel hats. So it sounds like what you're saying is one of the joys is that in a field like this, we do have opportunities for different industries. You can be a clinician, you could be an administrator, you can be a business owner, you can be a faculty member. But I'm wondering if whether or not in any of those, there is enough upward mobility for you to be really good in one of them or not because of the nature of jumping around horizontally, doesn't mean they're not important because you get different kinds of skills. But a lot of the reasons that clinicians are unhappy is because once you are a clinician, all you do is rack up years and hopefully some skills, but you can't necessarily manifest those skills in a different kind of position that challenges you in your clinical domain you can't be a chief neurosurgeon who works on the difficult cases um but you started out as a resident who just did the you know the general stuff that didn't pay as much and you could see yourself being that neurosurgeon that does very difficult tiny babies or like whatever it is you know uh you know conjoined twins or whatever it is right um in our field there it seems like that doesn't exist and then in in faculty you generally have to leave your department you go to department chair and then you leave in your dean now you're in charge of a lot of departments if you even want to do that in business you know it's it's the same idea there's a point where you've saturated the market and if you want to expand you either make new products for the same people yeah. Or you start saying, well, what about OT and PT or what about teachers or what about, you know, whatever. Right. So yeah, that's what made me wonder about whether or not, um, that's a, it sounds like, you know, you're someone who can jump around, but for people who can't jump around <laughs> or don't have, or don't have that ingenuity that you have naturally, it yeah. might be harder.
0: Yeah. And, the, and the, the concept of jumping around and what allows you to do it or not is, yeah, I think that's worth talking about because when I left academia it wasn't to become an slp it felt like kind of a lateral move at the time because i was at the tail end of my phd program i hadn't taken a you know faculty job yet and in a lot of ways it felt like starting over and in a lot of ways it was really like traumatic for me because all of my friends were in academia everybody else was going on to take postdocs and suddenly i was this like lone person who was like, actually, I don't know if I want to take a faculty job. I'm going to go take an SLP job instead. And so there was nothing about doing that, that like, I, like I had some sort of like, um, special circumstance that allowed me to do that. If anything, I was like jumping off a cliff (laughs) with that change. With that one, it was very much everyone around me thought I was absolutely crazy for leaving academia. They thought I had lost my marbles that I would go get a PhD and then suddenly be like, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. And so I lost a lot of like closeness to people who I had developed relationships with because they went one way and I went another. So I think that the thing that allowed me to do that, I don't i don't, I don't know that there's anything that allowed me to do it, I just did. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I just was there like, has I to, don't want to do but, this anymore. <laughs> but there has to be something that made you that there's—it's inherent to who you are—to to, uh, to yeah. really acknowledge that this—the the, the warning signs that you might not be happy, even though it's what everybody wants for you and what everybody else would do, and that you would fit in perfectly if you just did those things. You knew inside. That wasn't going to make you happy, or just the uncertainty was enough to not jump in a commitment that you didn't feel that you could commit to long haul. I think that that is an inherent difference between you and maybe others who did it and then um, loved it, did it, was sort of in between, and did it It was like I wish I hadn't done that. (laughs) I am still here. Here I am, and you know it's way harder to leave academia when you have been doing it for a while, because now there's so many people you're training, there's a lab, there's the classes you've taught, there's pressure to stay, and there's also cushy job benefits. Yeah,
0: yeah. And in a lot of ways, I left academia at one of the easiest possible transition points to leave it. Um, But then my move from being an SLP to a faculty member, I was lucky I was able to do that because I already had a PhD. I had been adjuncting at the university that I ended up getting hired at. And I actually wasn't looking to leave my SLP job. They reached out to me and they're like, you're tired of adjuncting and you want a full-time job with us now, don't you? And I was like, what? <laughs> and they basically just talked me into it. I was like, yeah, I do kind of miss being at the university. I do kind of want to come back. So I did. Um, but then the jump from being a faculty member to a full-time business owner, that had a lot of luck associated with it. Like the vast majority of people aren't going to be able to jump straight into being a full-time business owner without doing that plus their other jobs simultaneously for quite a while, which I did for a while too, um, in order to build up enough that you can quit your job and actually have some guaranteed income and then you know cross your fingers that you're able to make up your salary or whatever. But I had quit my um, faculty job at the point at which I could match my salary. And so I was really lucky that my business was growing in a way that it was very low risk. It was very low risk for me to quit my faculty job because I, you know, stopped at that point in time. Um, Do you remember, by the way, do do you remember me calling you and asking you about what it was like to be a faculty member with like a small business on the side, like way early when I started the Informed SLP?
1: Yes, I remember you calling me years ago and asked me that, and then do you remember me calling you maybe a year ago saying, so you left academia, I'm going to do it now, Uh, tell me about those things. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So so now uh, one other question I have about what you said, which is, I see you did not mention the people, you mentioned the opportunities. Uh Right. And so every time I think of any business or just it and Ash is a business, speech pathology is a business. Uh I think of what the um, guy on that show called The Prophet says with those three P's, people, profit and uh, people process product. So you talked about the product and you said that we are really helping people communication and fitting matters. You talked about the process and, you know, the jobs that you can have, the hats you can wear, but what do you think about the people? Any joys there? And it's okay if there aren't any, but I'm just curious the about like Individual people? or The people, people? the people of SLP, because <laughs> the question is, are they different? Are they identical to everybody else? In your opinion, is there something special about them? If so, what it is, what, what do you think that is?
0: Um, I mean, uh, there's, there's been a lot of individual relationships that I've made being in our field that I cherish. Like, like when you look at my friends, most of my friends are in our field (laughs) and most of the people I've learned from are in our field because everybody I've spent all my time around for the most part is in our field. Um, But I actually, to be perfectly honest, never considered the people of our field as a whole until more recent years, until I was kind of starting to look at our field more with a bird's eye view and think, you know, what makes our field different? What makes our field unique? How do the people as a whole who make up our field either catapult it forward or hold it back? Um, I never really thought about that until recent years, which is kind of weird and wild when you think about it. And I was, I didn't think about it because I didn't, I don't know. I just didn't, everybody around me was just like me. You know what I mean? I'm a white female in a white female dominated field. And I just didn't really think about it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But I think social media makes us all think about it, even if it wasn't about um, you being in the majority group. Social yeah. media has a lot of posts where people are reflecting on who SLPs are and okay. why do we do this? Or someone will post something seemingly benign and some people, somebody will jump on and talk about just like an SLP to use your training to, to treat people like blah, blah, blah. And you're like, whoa, do we do that? So there are so many moments for self-reflection because mm-hmm. I also think people are getting angrier and angrier online oh, on yeah. certain posts i mean it, there was a point where people would ask questions and hey what do you mean by this or what's your point of view it's like trollville sometimes not everywhere but you know sometimes i think we should all some people should have t-shirts that say this is how i troll because it's just constant and you get to the point where you're like okay the pendulum has swung a little bit from." we're so amazing. We're so amazing to, okay, maybe we have a lot of shit to fix, but both can't be the absolutes either.
0: (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think time, yeah. Social media allows you to see a lot of things. I think time on social media, because I wasn't a heavy social media user in our field until probably 2015 or so, but being able to have those accumulated years now, where I can look back and not only look through, you know, those kind of waves and trends about what SLPs are saying, how they're treating each other, how they're collaborating or not collaborating or or whatever, um, but also having space away, um, like like a like time as distance, allows me to look back and start to notice things more than i that I wouldn't have noticed, you know, at
1: the time. Yeah, it's um, it's exactly right. Where you hear it and you need some time to realize. Is that a statement that I understand, that I make sense? And then you keep getting bits of evidence that puts that piece together, that makes that initial comment that you read a few years ago make sense now or make less sense now. Right, right, totally. Um, Like a good example of that is
0: when I first got on SLP social media and the first couple years, like around like, you know, 2015, 2016 time I remember thinking, because I was an SLP at that time, um, or had just, you know, was transitioning out of my SLP job and, you know, um, waiting for the faculty role to open up that I was going to be taking. But um, I remember thinking that um, SLP social media had a lot of like, bullies and was really negative. And I was really, really sensitive to um, any sort of negativity and wanted it all to be extremely like, positive, happy all the time. Cause I just couldn't see how any amount of negativity could be productive. And then over y- the years, I started to recognize how people would actually use, um, uh, like use trying to stamp out negativity as a way of actually stamping out any sort of progress in our field, you know? Um, and like, that's, that's an example of something that like, it took space away you know, and took time for me to
1: start to like recognize some of those things. Um, but I, I would also say that when your view of negativity is not necessarily someone else's view of negativity, 100. Um, yeah. right? And I don't know at the time what you necessarily read and I, it's not, you know, to go down that path, but sometimes I would read probably the same post and go, why is everybody so sensitive? All this person said was they don't like this. Why are they saying that they should like it if they don't like it? If I said I don't like beats and a bunch of people said, you are mean to beats. Beats didn't do anything to you. It's not their fault that they are red and disgusting. You're like, I cannot like beats if I don't want to, but this negativity is not helping us. Why are you making negativity about your feelings? Yes. If you read, not you, Meredith, but if somebody reads something and they say, I don't like the emotion that came up from that, then you acknowledge you and your emotions and you deal with yourself. Right, You don't go and put all this intent into somebody, especially without asking a question first. Like, hey, help me understand this. What? How would you describe this? What did you mean when you say that? And they keep if they keep saying the wrong thing or something that gives you a a platform to make a point on. Okay, that's one thing. But you might actually find that that's all you. You're just sensitive, right? Right, a hundred percent. And it took me a while. It took me a while to
0: recognize that. Um, and I think I was coming out. Uh, and I don't know what the difference would be in like the perspective. Like I don't. I. I I'd have to think a little bit more on it to pinpoint really what the difference is in the perspective why I would have been much more sensitive to negativity like six seven years ago where I was like Ugh, you can only be happy on social media to whereas now it just doesn't bother me like it just doesn't bother me um, and I'll and I'm so <laughs> I'm so used to like more difficult discussions or more heated discussions just being a part of my daily life that it actually now is harder for me to relate. To people who are like oh i can't stand being on that page or being on that group because it gets so negative all the time and i'm like really like i can turn it on read it turn it off and like it, 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 i'm just used to it now but anyway. yeah and that could be what it that's that could be what, what's happened yeah yeah totally how about you how do you feel like our profession has allowed you to gain skills and build programs and be
1: fulfilled well I came from it from a more general standpoint, and I agree with you that one thing that I really like about our field is that we deal with communication and feeding, and that's at the core of our humanity. It's not enough for me to say I would never leave the field. In fact, I feel very strongly in the last seven days that I need to actively work on leaving the field and not spend any more time working to improve the field. And we'll talk about why when we get to the drama, but uh, we're joyous right now. So let us do that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think the issue is that it's not clear to me that, that, that we deserve the opportunity to deal with such amazing functions that humans need so badly I don't think we deserve to get I think we happenstance on it in all the wrong ways from the feeding to the elocutionists um, and I think that we're punitive with it but the joy is still very much so that at the end of the day um, the possibility that we get to be involved in that is really meaningful to me Um, like you I loved that we can have so many industries or we can wear so many hats if we are that kind of person from academia to clinic, to science, to um, corporations, administration, business. Um, The job availability is amazing. Meaning, if you are an SLP who can't find a job, it's because you want a very particular job or you wanna work in a very particular place. I'm not saying that everybody has the job they want, but they have a job. (laughs) So I really like that. Um, swallowing is fun to talk about. I have to say I had no idea, no idea that I would be getting a PhD. I firmly believe that um, I'm different from you in that when you said you don't, you can't think of yourself outside of this field. Um, I can think of myself in 50 different fields and I know exactly how it would function in each of them and that's why it almost didn't really matter where I ended up. I just needed to be interested enough in the material And I would study the crap out of it. I would, I would soar, I would climb, I would make it that I knew as much as I could about that topic, because that's what interests me. The the lifelong learning on any given topic in the scrunchie factory, put me there. I will be the most scrunchie factory um, (laughs) selling motherfucker you've ever seen. And everyone's gonna have a scrunchie because I'm there, so make this happen. (laughs) Everybody's gonna want those scrunchies. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. I mean, the spelling alone is weird. Uh, But I, but swallowing, it turned out to be something that I just got into because I thought it was interesting. And I, it it could have been, it could have been anything in our field that I thought was interesting. Um, But what I really like um, about our field that has not been tapped into yet is the potential the potential is huge for us to be able to get lay people to know what we do and care about what we do. Yeah. Who owns more of the things related to music than we do? Music. We have larynxes. So singing is ours. We have to hear something. So music is ours. We have the language component of it, right? Mm-hmm. The only thing we don't have are the, the manual motor skills associated because we even studied the brain associated with sound and language and, and you know even tonal languages, right? Melodic languages. So we have... The, we have that on lock, yet we don't do anything with it
0: mm-hmm.
1: to make that part of our field that people are interested in. To me, the equivalent is people in PT who also help quarterbacks in the NFL. Right. Everyone knows what a PT is because they've had an injury and they like sports and they know more about the Achilles tendon or blah, 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 because their favorite quarterback or somebody got hurt. And the PTs in their life are saying, oh man, that's, that's the kind of terror that blah, blah, blah. And they're listening like, fuck, is my team going to win? That's the kind of terror that so-and-so. Meanwhile, what do we do? We get mad about vocal fry that nobody gives two shits about right we're on facebook screaming at each other about not maligning younger people with a vocal fry why aren't we telling the world why aren't we saying this oh my god people would love to hear about this same thing with sex as you know i had a gulp group where i talked with um uh, another asha member except for its american sexual health um association and she's a sexual health expert and she had clients who had questions about their gag reflex and how to minimize it and we ended up helping to educate that I was ex- educating the physiology on that. And to me, people were just sitting there and all like, wait, a gag isn't just like the randomness of the sky being blue. Right. That's how they view. It. I'm like, no, there's, it, it's just like a sneeze or a cough or anything else. And the, the way that they listen they're like, wow, there's actual science to this. I don't have to be ashamed. I can have this conversation. I can explain myself. I shouldn't be swallowing these things that are that that make my, uh, my, my sensory receptors numb. <laughs> like right. maybe I shouldn't be swallowing those things because a gag is normal. And uh, in, in those moments I thought, wow, so many people have real life functions that they want to improve. And it is literally not necessarily a disorder But it is an interest that more people would have that we could actually have really good direct billing for. And the potential for that is so big for our field. But it does require people like you who are willing to say, I know everybody wants me to do one of these three popular industries or these popular disorders or these popular grant mechanisms. But actually, I see this area as what's really interesting to me. And a lot of people don't do it because they think of all the people who will tell them you need to conform, instead of the people who say you need to explore, you need to build, you need to let help us to understand, you need to be the first person on the ground explaining what what the what the moon looks like. Yeah, you need to do take that first step and say so. There's craters. It's gray. It's cold. Because we want it. We need to look through your eyes, but they don't get as much encouragement. Certainly not from the upper management, if you will, being Asha. In fact, Asha is more likely to smash a idea, because (laughs) that is that that is the nature of a lot of um, those kinds of organizations. Um, I would also say that my drive is well suited to what can make somebody successful in our field, meaning um, I'm willing to overlook people's initial expectations of me based on my physical appearance. to recognize that most people in our field are conformist. Most people in our field are afraid. Most people in our field want positive feedback all the time. Most people in our field do not want to be vulnerable. They do not want to expose themselves. They do not want to ask a question to get clarification for the fear that someone might think they're dumb. I don't think I'm dumb. I think I'm very far from it. So if I ask the dumbest question on the planet, guess what? I know now I'm not as dumb as I was before I asked it. So for that reason, I got, I climaxed early, if you will, in terms of getting a PhD and getting the grants and getting the tenure and getting those things. Um, because I don't have a problem standing out and doing like the most active learning. Like I'm always in demanding understanding mode. I'm always demanding understanding. I wouldn't be as successful in another field where it is saturated with people like me because people wouldn't, um, I would just be, I'd be regular enough that um, I think people wouldn't come to me afterward and give me the, wow, you ask really good questions. You should come give a talk. It's like, yeah, everybody asks good questions. Everybody's yes. articulate. Everybody's blah, blah, blah. Everybody's reading all the literature. We should all get the talk. <laughs>
0: yes. So that
1: part of me does well in a field where they're still um, learning. That, that personality is a standout and something people generally want to have in their presence to sort of enlighten them. Right. Right. So, um, the field is wide open to niches and, um, my other big thing, the biggest joy I've had in this field is the opportunity to train other people. Because the, the fastest way to change the world in the field is to train a couple of people who see at least part of what you see, so they don't go forth and do exactly the things that the people around you that you're pointing out, did you see how that happened? Did you see that that, that inner dialogue? Did you see blah, blah, blah? This is why we are where we are. And just keep pumping that information that you actually can be the change. Um, And here's how I do it. You do it in your way. A good example of one of the biggest joys I've had is when I decided I wanted to get a PhD, I was at Howard University and I wanted to do things in the medical arena, which they did not have labs for. So because I was in DC, it was convenient. There are a lot of institutes and organizations that have labs, namely the biggest one, the NIH, So given my personality, I just start sending out random emails to all kinds of scientists, some of whom actually replied and say, sorry, we don't take Howard students, which you could take in many ways, but they do take other students. But one or two people did respond and say, come on out. And I ended up working at the NIH and being an NIH employee and basically doing my whole dissertation 40 hours a week. Christy Ludlow was the dissertation advisor um, she was the NIH lab chief, but she became an adjunct at Howard so she could advise me primarily. Um, and so there was a nice merge there. Time passed years and years later. Um, this is beyond Hopkins. I'm at the university of Florida and I get a call from somebody named Jessica Forbes. And she says, hi, everybody at Howard is saying, I should know you I'm interested in swallowing and there are no labs here. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, wow, I'm going to be your Christy Ludlow in my head. And sure enough, and that same phone call, one phone call, I said, if you want to know what it's like to work in a lab, you can come down this summer, I will pay you hourly to expose yourself, you can collect data, you'll be on the IRBs, and you can learn whether or not science is what you want, whether swallowing is your area of interest. And then not long after that, she just actually, in May of this year, she graduated with her PhD in an area of special, specialty with swallowing with me on the committee as that adjunct person, and she's now doing a postdoc at the University of Florida with my former colleague who I published with, and he studies, you know, ankle dorsal flexion, but now they're combining motor learning related to swallowing and other mechanisms of the body, and she's elated, and she just started last month. So if there's any tangible thing that I can point to where I actually impacted a human's life, who will then, her ripple, my drop and the ripples around that can go really wide, but she's now her own drop, and she's got her own ripples, and it's only because all I, I didn't do anything other than give her the opportunity and let her grow in the direction she wanted to. And so, for me, that is the biggest joy of everything I can do in this field.
0: Yeah, I love that. There's no, there's nothing more fun than doing a little bit that help ends up helping somebody else a lot because they didn't they didn't need a lot from you. They just needed a little bit. They needed a little helping hand to you know go forward. I love that. My favorite thing you said about is, or that you mentioned is how much potential we have in our field. That's so right. We have such a huge, huge amount of potential. And the way you framed it is very focused on looking out. Like we do a whole lot of looking in within our field, like among SLPs, among each other, most of the businesses develop in our field only, where they're continuing to just tr- try to sell more stuff to SLPs or SLPs clients. Whereas, if a lot more of us looked outward, you know, like with the example you mentioned about, you know, PTs helping, you know, um, football players. There's no reason that SLPs couldn't have a significant role in, you know, big musicians, yes. <laughs> you know, careers and welding and stuff. We don't spend nearly enough time looking out, and we don't. And, and I think that even we are, you know blind in many ways to our potential like you mentioned that's very yeah.
1: yeah and in fact to add to what you said um how many times have you seen on Facebook where they will get together and say um I'm at I work at so-and-so location and I saw that this other field is working with so-and-so shouldn't we be doing that yes go yeah, do it, do it. <laughs> but what why why is, like, is this is a nice conversation to say to give Spawn ideas and you end up doing it. And you said, I remember asking that question five years ago. Now I'm the world-renowned so-and-so for the Mariah Carey Foundation on voice problems. I don't know. The point is that we know a lot about the larynx. We know a lot about voice. We might not know about music. And a lot of times people in our field who are both musicians and like voice tend to go into that area, but it shouldn't be such a thing where, well, you know, she used to be a vocalist. So of course she can do it. Hey, I don't have to have swallowing problems to have someone's swallowing issues. I yeah. have to understand normal I have to understand abnormal and a lot of sp- a lot of people who are NFL coaches weren't in the NFL. Yeah. I don't know why I'm obsessed with the NFL. I don't even really like sports, but whatever, <laughs> nobody doesn't know what I'm talking about, right? So I think I think the issue is the risk taking and um the willingness to as you said not na- navel gaze. Yeah. Rather look outward and build that new genre, that whole new thing that needs to happen that that could make you happy and passionate about what you do. Yeah.
0: Are there any other things that you think, you know, however somebody were to define it, whether it's impact, opportunity, money, power, happiness, that are sort of like the keys to success, where looking at both yourself and things that you've done, as well as people close to you or people around you would have sort of been things that you've noticed as being keys to success.
1: The fear that people have that other people will say something about them is so debilitating that nobody does anything. And in fact, they then channel that into negativity toward other people who did it, not because they did something inherently wrong, rather because they did something right that anyone could have done to a degree, maybe not the same way, but to a degree, they could have done it as well. And for me, that is a big reason why I think um, a lot of people in our field are unhappy is because... Our field is filled with a lot of people who actually don't mind tearing people down, but they do it in ways like, I mean, I'm not judging, but and then they give you a long list of judges. Right. and then they go, but I mean, like, I wish her well. Like, she's amazing. I fucking love her. She's such a badass. It's just if it was me, and then all the trash talk, trash talk. So all you did was like dot in some M and M's and turds, and right. somehow I'm supposed to be like, but it's a bowl of M and M's interspersed with massive, uh, like, juicy turds. Like, let's not forget <laughs> the turds. You shitter. yeah yeah that's it's yeah in fact that quote that I there's a um, quote that I put on social media and everyone was like yes girl and it was like the same people who hate on you will eventually mimic you because they studied you so hard looking for flaws they got inspired without knowing it that's what happens when your light is so bright it shines on even the darkest spirits And every time somebody says, we want a thought leader like you to give a talk, as I was saying before, not in this talk, but I've now given hundreds and hundreds of presentations. And they usually say, we want a thought leader. And I'm like, I'm not a thought leader. I'm not the Pied Piper of your neurons. You're your thought leader. I'm a luminary. I will expose. I will enlighten people. But you have to have the capacity to take something and take that and do something with it. And if you don't, then you can be enlightened all day. But the thought leader can't make you do anything that's really meaningful. That didn't come from somebody else. Yeah. It's way more passionate. um, Your work is often more passionate when you see yourself in that work because of what you bring to it.
0: Right. What usually causes you just out of curiosity to either like accept or turn down talks? Cause you have to, I I get, I get asked to do talks constantly. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I find kind of um, interesting is that, People think I know everything about everything, kind of in the way that people think that you're a thought leader. They think yeah. I know everything about everything. And they ask me to give all these talks about, and, and 90% of the time, I'm like, you don't want me. <laughs> like, trust me, you don't want
1: me to talk about that. Like, I'm the wrong person to be yeah.
0: talking about that. It's a,
1: it's, yeah. Well, I'm, um, I think one thing is I already, I already know that I can do a good job. The question about whether or not I should give that talk has a lot to do with. Um, whether or not I can muster up what it takes to be honest. And I, I find myself there every time if I can muster up what it takes to not give the same talk and assume that the knowledge is already there. I go in assuming that even though I've given this talk about anatomy and physiology 400 times, that I'm going to still get pin drop silence. When I say, all right, so we're already cool and so on so and So let's just quickly review those muscles. And then it's pin drop silence. And then I recognize my job is never done. And the patients are suffering at the other end of somebody who doesn't know how mechanism works that they've been getting paid to treat for 20 years. Mm-hmm. So the thing that keeps me going, it's not the money. It's literally the patients first by way of the clinician who needs to see what they don't know. That's the luminary in me is to pull back the blanket so we can see the squalor and walk away with the blanket and not allow you to cover it back up, rather, clean the mess up. You're the blanket stealer. Emma's <laughs> blanket. You stealing everybody's blankets. I
0: got a house full of blankets. I'm a hoarder. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> um, last question for yeah. you um, What do you think that's something that you did, if you can remember, early in your career? that actually got in the way of your success. So like, we've mostly focused on, okay, so like, because I did this, this was helpful and I tried to do this. And so I think that's worked. Is there anything that like looking back on, you're like, if I had learned that lesson sooner, or I, you know, that's a misstep I made that kind of got myself in my own way.
1: Yeah. The misstep is expecting that people will give you the benefit of the doubt because of your intentions, rather your actions. Yeah. Meaning I assume, I assumed I no longer do. Um, and sometimes I still willfully go in that direction. I assumed that um, showing up and doing a good job and being, um, you know, somebody with light behind their eyes when you're talking, I, mean, I can I can keep it with the conversation, that that was enough, that if there ever was a misstep where someone had to question my integrity or question something about me, that they would take the time to ask the question and use all the positive up up until that point to to inform themselves, but that's not the case. It's not. It may not be me necessarily. It may not be that person, but it happens all the time. I can't. There's no formula. It's like, well, it's because you're black, or well, it's because I don't know. Because I went to Howard University for two degrees. It happened there the whole time, and everybody was black. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. I do think that. And I'm not saying this happens just to me. I'm sure everyone's been there to agree to a degree. I just have this thing about capable people and how much I'm willing to go. The, the end mile with them. That's the Jessica example. She impressed me so much in that one conversation. I was like, she has to be here this summer. How do I entice her to come? It was almost as much for me as it was for her. I love being around capable capable people in whatever it is, maybe their hands, their, their talents, their brain. I'm inspired by them. And I assume that the world views people with some kind of skill generally that way, um, because I do and I'm wrong. You know what I mean? And they actually use it against you. Um, Again, not trying to decide if there is some mental health issue or like, or is there a personality issue? I don't know what it is, but it happens all the time. And I have to be very thoughtful that that can actually go against people. Um, And sometimes me, not all the time, but sometimes me, because I didn't think, oh, I have to explain this because they're going to go to the worst possible conclusion about me. They're not going to ask a question, go, hey, just out of curiosity when you said this what did you mean and then we all end up going oh my god I'm so glad I asked that because I thought they just go with whatever they think and then tell everybody and you're like oh that or and you know what's even worse I don't remember the interaction because it was so minuscule in my life next thing you know there's a giant story about well you know that time that you did don't I'm like no I don't even remember that person and they have got this story in their head that is so big so that is something I actively have to work on now um because people fill in the blanks with whatever the fuck comes to their head. (laughs) Right, right. And you
0: just assume that everything's fine and working fine in the background. And then you find out later and you're like, oh, great,
1: great, okay. Exactly. And again, that's not unique to our field at all. But in this field, I have noticed that there's more reticence toward asking a question to clarify if somebody was actually being positive, negative, mean, nice. They just walk, say, oh yeah, no, cool, fine. And then later on, they're like, that made me feel this way, just like your negativity point yeah about social media and how they how they were made to feel is that the the is the currency that they buy everything with yeah and how they feel in that moment is real it doesn't matter what anyone's intent was this is how it landed that's all that matters right. and i've learned more and more that more people function from that standpoint it may work it may not work for them and i'm not somebody who does so i have to be very cognizant about saying hey how did you feel about that what are your remaining thoughts did you hear what I said? Can you say back to me what I said? Cause I just want to make sure we're on the same page here. Like, it's like, you got to juice it up, but you do have to do it sometimes. And it's not my nature. Right. Right. I think that's
0: partly usually the struggle most people have is like the thing that makes them uniquely different from average is probably the thing that's going to cause the most,
1: you know, hiccups. Throughout. Yeah. We're our own um, cause and cure, our own cancer and our own cure. Yeah. Right. Once we figure out where we fit, we're like, Oh, oh, I see me now. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I see me through your eyes. That looks so different. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. For, for, for me, I think um, that the one thing that if I had latched onto it a little sooner, it would have been productive for me is a willingness to be disliked faster. Like the faster I got comfortable with that, and I have gotten increasingly comfortable with it over time. I feel like if I could turn the notch up on how fast that happened across my career, that probably would have been the thing that helped a lot. It's just an, I think in, it's- an assertiveness and willingness to be disliked and willingness to not censor myself quite as much.
1: Yeah. Do you think that it's your um, acceptance, I'll say maybe, Because the willingness has nothing to do with you; it's them. They're disliking you. You're just accepting it or not, right? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I will. You're (laughs) disliking me. Go. Um, Yes, but do yeah, yeah. But do you think that that is correlated with your um, forward progress? Um, Do you think that you would not be as successful now if you accepted uh, people's dislike for you, real or imagined? Um, a little bit less.
0: Um, yeah, I think it would have been stifling, <laughs> very stifling, and and I think those two things developed a little bit hand in hand because the more I think the more experience you have with somebody disliking you, and then coming to the realization that it's not the end of the world. And if anything, we learned more out of this than if we hadn't had that interaction and continuing to experience that over and over and over and over again. Like those two things I think developed
1: together for me. But if, you know. You know what I love about what you just said? What you said is such a representation of the most mature possible way to look at not being liked. And that is what you didn't say is that It's a reflection of them and in their insecurities. You're assuming no knowledge of anything. What you're doing is saying, this is the way the world is. I can't change it. I can only control my response to it, if any at all, and move forward from there. I'm not going to make up a story about that person and that they're projecting in order for me to make this situation palatable. Like she's just doing that because so, and sometimes that is the actual case, but generally you know something by that point. But a lot of times, most of the dislike has to be people who literally only know your social media profile and have filled in all of these gaps, as I said, with a story of who you are, they latch on to their confirmation bias and ask questions that lead to confirm that they have the right to feel this about you and there's a whole story in their head and there's nothing you could have ever possibly done to address it no and they might not even be projecting they just have a Um, lot of space to fill in their head and they start filling it right right
0: (laughs) (laughs) it's neither here nor there it happened exactly it's a learning experience and we can move on from
1: it (laughs) exactly it's neither hither nor thither (laughs) when you're super mature (laughs) (laughs)